Hello, everybody. My name is Daniel Prince, and I am the host of the Once Bitten podcast. This is a podcast focused on Bitcoin. It's my mission to interview as many people as I can around the different aspects of Bitcoin and help people understand exactly what Bitcoin could mean for them and for their families and for their future. I hope you enjoy the show. Thank you so much for listening. Hey guys, welcome to this edition of the Once Bitten podcast. Very special guest, really looking forward to getting into this one. Uh, I hope this brings something new. I was trying very desperately to direct my brains to ask different questions to Michael. And I think we did an okay job. We, we got into uh, some, some different areas. So stick around for it and uh, enjoy it because it's always amazing to, to hear his thoughts on so many different topics. So before we get into this, make sure you head over to coinfloor.co.uk forward slash bitten if you're in the UK and you want to start stacking some sats. That's the place to head. And thank you, uh, Obi, for your uh, continued support. And welcoming uh, new sponsors as well, uh, swanbitcoin.com forward slash once bitten. If you're over across the pond there, hey guys, thank you everybody that's uh, that's listening over um, in that part of the world. Go start stacking your stats with um, stacking your sats with, with Swan Bitcoin. Uh, amazing company been put together by a bunch of Bitcoiners. Use that code forward slash once bitten. You'll get 10 bucks for free and you can start your DCA journey into this world of Bitcoin as we enter this amazing bull run that we are all about to witness. Let's get into this one. Big shout out, thank you, at Adam Woodhams1 for putting all of this together, at Jim Reaper for putting together the website once-bitten.com and to the boys over at 21ism, you're killing it. What an amazing opening a brilliant meme, Hodler Than Now, providing the uh, the music for that. And all of the artwork that you are showcasing, whether that's films or prints, comics, uh, whatever it is, and all the writing and the videos as well. Head over to At21ism, go support the cause, and then click through and be sent straight across to the individual artists. Let's get into this interview. I hope you enjoy this one. Catch you after the show. Hey guys, welcome to this edition of the Once Bitten podcast. And joining me today is the Giga Chad himself, Michael Saylor from MicroStrategy. Thank you very much, Michael, for your um, for your time and uh, and joining us on the show today. Happy to be here. Thanks for having now, me. I've been telling the girls that, um, and I don't know whether you know, but they come on and ask the uh, the first question. Are they going to meet their uncle Chad today? <laughs> I had no, I had another uncle. <laughs> so, so Caitlin said to me, "Who the hell is Uncle Chad?" I didn't, we, I didn't know we had an uncle Chad. I'm like, well, we all have an uncle Chad now, Caitlin, and <laughs> we're going to go and chat with him. But Lauren does want to ask you the first question, and uh, what what would that be? Um, so I heard you like Star Wars. So my question was, um, who's your favorite character and why? Well, believe it or not, Star Wars came out when I was in sixth grade, about sixth grade. And um, I remember there was so much hype. It was the first big science fiction movie that was going to come out. And we stood 
and lines that stretched around the block for three hours to buy the tickets. I mean, it, it was such a big thing. And, um, and when we first went, I remember that they gave you this little button that said, may the force be with you. And, and all of the kids would wear this to school. And it was like the big thing that we had that no one else had. And it was a rite of passage because yeah, because it was sold out for like four days or five days in a row and, and you couldn't get it in any theater ever. So it was quite the cultural event. Now, my favorite character in Star Wars, Han Solo. Han Solo, why? Well, he's got the Millennium Falcon, you know, which is a pretty cool ship. Everybody, every boy of my generation wanted a space yacht and it's kind of a space yacht and he's got a really cool sidekick chewy and he's uh he's always got good one-liners so you got to appreciate that <laughs> okay good answer for you yes and caitlin what did you want to ask uh my question was um what is business intelligence when businesses try to make good decisions, they, uh, they normally create software applications that are custom to that organization that extract insights from their data. So if a, if a retailer was trying to figure out how much of a given item to stock in a store, they would create a custom business intelligence application that predicted how much of it they needed. And because they've got, say, a million items across a thousand stores, that's a hundred million combinations of buckets of items. And you have to have a different amount every day based upon all the data that's changing. So business intelligence software is software that's bought by these large companies, the Walmarts, the Amazons, the, the, uh, and the large banks and the large governments. And they, they have huge volumes of information and complicated questions to answer, and they build custom applications to build them. My company builds the tools that we sell to those companies so that they can build their applications so that they can make intelligent decisions every day. Cool. Can I ask for an internship? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so. Thanks very much. Um, do, do you guys have any more questions for Uncle Chad before you go? <laughs> no, I'm. I got a question to you, Daddy. Uh oh. Why, why is he call yeah. him Uncle Chad? <laughs> yeah, why is he our Uncle Chad? <laughs> <laughs> you, We're leaving that Chad? for you, Daniel. That's for you to answer. That, that's turned on. That's turned the tables, hasn't it? Uh, Chad is a, a Bitcoin maximalist meme for somebody that um, makes bold moves and bold statements and is uh, somebody to be um, looked up to and respected. And uh, when Michael announced the, the ridiculously big news that many of us on Bitcoin Twitter had been waiting for, we were blown away by the percentage of the commitment that was shown when, when Michael and his company uh, bought, well, in the end, $425 million worth of Bitcoin. So he's now commonly been known within the, uh, within the space as, uh, as GigaChat. 
So he's your uncle, Chad. Yep. Does that make sense? Okay, it makes sense now. <laughs> but you don't always have to call him Uncle Chad. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks, girls. You want to say goodnight? Thank you. Good night. Good night. Nice to meet you, both. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, too. Thanks, Michael. Um, I would, I'd like to ask you a question, actually, which... I don't think I've heard you talk too much on, and I've listened to a lot of the other podcasts. Funny enough, actually, when we, when we first emailed each other, you said, yeah, I'd come on the show. I've got about another 10 hours worth of stuff to talk about. And since then, I think you've done about another 10 podcasts. So I've been trying to think of, uh, of different things to, to talk about. And one thing I'd like to explain is your, your education platform, uh, sailor.org. And, and the reason I ask is because uh, I taking my kids out of um, mainstream school, state education. Uh, we, we traveled around the world with them for two and a half years. Uh, three out of the four are now online platform learning, self-directed education. <coughs> who just met, she chooses to go to the local college. And I think you have a quite unique take on, on education and what that means and, and where this is headed. So I'd love to get your thoughts on that, please. Sure. Yeah, it's a subject near and dear to my heart. Um, I grew up in a military family. My father's a non-commissioned officer. And uh, when I graduated from high school, I think the sum total of my family's life savings for 200 years would have covered the first six weeks of college at MIT. But it's, it's, it's expensive now to go to college. It's always been expensive. It's getting more expensive but my recollection then was the life savings of a middle-class family would pay for halfway through your first semester and then you're bankrupt. And so I, the only way I went to college was I got a scholarship from the Air Force and I went as an ROTC cadet. I, you know, I joined the military and uh, it was that or I just couldn't go there. Right. And um, when I got there, it was it was an obscenely expensive education paid for by the United States government. And I remember my first class was physics. And I'm sitting in a physics hall and uh, every freshman at MIT goes through this class and it holds like 500 people. You know, It's a 500 person lecture hall. So you can imagine sitting at the very back row of a 500-person lecture hall watching someone come out and, and scrape on a blackboard, and the guy is about uh, 100 feet away from me, and we're sitting in the back, and we're scribbling down, and we're trying to follow the lectures, and then we go back to our, our dorm or fraternity or wherever you live, and then you study the books really hard, and then you take a test once a week. And for the privilege of that, they charged somebody, the U.S. government or individuals, they charged them about the amount that a middle-class person would save in three years. Expensive. Now, mm -hmm. if you fast forward today, it, it occurred to me at some point that, well, couldn't we just record that and put it online on a website and let people watch the lecture online? And today, if you go to sailor.org, which is my nonprofit organization, you can find the same physics teacher and the same lecture I watched for free. And by the way, it's not just for free. It's better because it's a lot better to, 
to start and stop the video, watch it at your own rate, and then be up close and be able to zoom in and see what the guy was scribbling on the whiteboard. So it's not just free, but it's better. Now, if you, if you think about you think about this entire subject deeply, and let's take mathematics. Well, when did they invent algebra? It's like, it's not a hundred years old, right? It's not, Isaac Newton invented calculus and the calculus of variations, and he published Principia Mathematica. And that was what, 1776 or something? So that's like 90% of all the higher math you're ever going to learn one guy printed in the 18th century. But most people, you know, they get through algebra and geometry. Algebra is thousands of years old. Geometry is thousands of years old, right? So here's the question. Why is there a copyright on that? Like, why, why do you have to pay for a textbook? Why do you have to pay for that education? By the way, why do you actually need 250,000 math teachers to teach something which is 2,000 years old and there's only one way to teach it? It's like, you know, you wouldn't hire 250,000 people or, or what would it take if we wanted to play Beethoven's Seventh Symphony in your living room with the full orchestra? Wouldn't it be prohibitively expensive to provide music in such a fashion? Like, it seems kind of ridiculous, right? Like, like no, I'm not going to hire 250 musicians to play Beethoven's Seventh Symphony as my technique to give the middle class people music. It's, I mean, it's somewhere between silly and moronic, right? I don't know what you want to call it. But so why is it that the, that the federal government or, or a university would hire someone to teach algebra or calculus or calculus of variations or matrix algebra or thermodynamics or physics, right? In fact, if you look at all the mathematics and computer science and, and engineering disciplines, and then you ask, what are all the things that you learn in college? And then you say, what do you, what's, what's the portion of a college education that, that can be decomposed into virtual education? And what's the portion that requires physical education? Well, I get the country club aspects of school. Like sometimes you're actually paying for school because you need someone to babysit the kid or you want to play tennis, or you want to meet people, or you want to walk through, you want to play golf, or you want to play intramural sports, or you need a place to live, right? There, there's that element. And then there's the element of learning calculus. And now we get to this issue of, um, if I hire 100,000 people to teach calculus, are they all equivalent in quality, or is somebody better than somebody else? Presumably in a bell curve, there's someone who's the best teacher and someone that's the worst teacher and everybody in the middle, you know, and uh, we only listen to Beethoven or Brahms or Mozart, right? It was the Price's Law. You know, they say like there's five, this is Jordan, I'm channeling Jordan, Jordan Peterson. There's like five classical musicians that are responsible for 50% of all music we listen to. And there's like 5% of their works that are responsible for 50% of that. So what's the idea behind Sailor Academy? 
the idea is why don't we just make education free for everybody forever? And could you? Well, I, I can't make golf and ballet lessons free for every forever or yoga is not, you know, I can't quite do some of these things, but uh, jittered bug square dancing lessons. And, and, you know, if you want to like a laboratory, maybe I can't quite get that free, but anything that's virtually teachable in theory, you can decompose to the textbook, the lecture, the online examination, the, the, um, the exercises. If you do that, then you should be able to upload it. And if you upload it, you should be able to reduce the variable cost from what is it like? It's it's two hundred fifty thousand dollars of variable cost for a high end college education in the United States today. Well, shouldn't the variable cost be reduced to the depreciation on the computer and the electricity? So yes. what is the real variable cost? If you wanted to learn how, um, if you wanted to learn math, shouldn't you be able to get a mathematics degree for about $97 in electricity, or maybe it's $19 of electricity instead of $250,000? So um, I started thinking about that, and I started this um, more than a decade ago, and the idea was simply create an online university. Now, I, I have one other observation on this subject, Dan, which is if you want to cure cancer or invent a fusion reactor or go to Mars, or if you want to solve the problem of global warming, whatever your problem is, you want to clean the oceans of the earth. All of the really difficult problems in the world probably require more than a high school education. In fact, if you think about school, right, high school gets you to the point where you can move through polite society. University undergrad gets you to the point where you recognize knowledge exists everywhere. A master's degree gets you to the point where you're a master practitioner in some area given, given a set of tools. And a PhD, theoretically, is defined as the point at which you've mastered a body of knowledge enough to make a seminal contribution to the civilization. If you have a PhD in biochemistry, in theory, you're supposed to be able to make a unique contribution to the body of knowledge in the human civilization. Ergo, you want to solve really difficult problems. You need to get to the graduate, postgraduate, PhD level. And last I checked, there were like 10 million PhDs in the world. I mean, 10 million to 20 million, but I think it was like 10 million. Um, and there's seven and a half billion people in the world. So you want to make the world a better place. You need about a billion PhDs. Well, I mean, what we really want, right, is we don't really want 250,000 people to teach algebra and calculus and geometry. What you want is the computer to teach algebra and calculus and geometry because the computer's, first of all, it's free. Second of all, it's on demand. Third of all, it's probably better much richer in every which way, you know, augmented with software tools, right? Like you want to learn to build an airplane. I give you the lectures and I give you the airplane simulator and I give you the wind tunnel and you design your airplane and the simulated wind tunnel snaps the wings off and you try it again and you don't kill anybody. And eventually you know how to design an airplane or at least a nice glider. Uh, that makes sense. We can do that for a million people for a nickel, right? So, I mean, or 
Or you can spend a quarter million dollars at MIT, which is the other approach. But it does take a rocket scientist to figure out the problem here, which is there's no way you can afford. Well, what's it cost for a PhD? A billion people times it's a million dollars to get a PhD. Five, maybe five hundred thousand on a budget in the Western world, and uh, you know, let's just say five hundred thousand times a billion. <laughs> How much is that, right? A thousand billion is a trillion, right? Five hundred thousand is five hundred trillion dollars. A lot of money. So even if you had the five hundred trillion dollars, right? Who's got you know? Can we actually do it the old-fashioned way with bricks and mortars institutions? And the answer is no. It's an intellectually bankrupt idea. But it's kind of silly idea, right? Like, why in the world do I have to actually pay that much money to learn? How many people do you know? that you went to school with that knew more mathematics than Isaac Newton knew? Because I don't know many, right? Not many. Isaac Newton put it all in the public domain, Dan, 200 years ago. And yet right now the impediment is a bunch of gatekeepers, people char you know, charging expensive money for textbooks, expensive courses, you know, expensive certifications. And we're going to hold back all these people because they don't have $500,000 to get a master's or a PhD in mathematics, even though the information's in the public domain. And you could argue, well, you can download Principia Mathematica from Google, but, you know, we want to augment it. There's a lot of ways to augment it. So the fundamental issue is education's too expensive, but it shouldn't be. And we need a lot more of it. And the only way to get a lot more of it is to A, drive the variable cost to zero, and B, um, create software to teach people. You know, the software can, people will say, well, I need to go do this. Well, you're not really. I mean, you can like create a, you can create a virtual simulation. What happens when a, you know, when a four-year-old kid can create a bridge in a simulation? Um, and then build a bigger one and a bigger one and then apply an earthquake to it and then blow a wind past it and hit it with a Cat 5 storm and then watch it and then change the material on it and then drive cars over it and put trucks on it and then have, um, you know, a really heavy truck smash it and then rebuild the bridge the right way. And they can do that all instead of watching Netflix between ages of four and eight. Maybe. Maybe we'll find some real emergent geniuses like the Mozarts, like the Gausses, like the Isaac Newtons of the world, because we give them those kind of tools. I, I wasn't going to MIT without an Air Force scholarship. I wasn't going and I wasn't getting those lectures and there was no Internet. And now, you know, I guess the best that can be said is today you can kind of bypass that and go to YouTube. But. We still don't have um, as much formalized structured education as we need. So my passion around the Sailor Academy and Sailor.org is let's just make uh, education free to everybody forever. And uh, we're just biting off one thing at a time. You know, uh, the, uh, the STEM science, technology, engineering courses are the easiest ones. Undergraduate. Um, we first started doing that. Then we started doing cross-accreditation with other universities. In the next 36 months, 
we expect to get to the point where we're a degree granting university and it'll flip to be the, the Sailor University. And then anybody can get a full degree and we'll expand the, the course offerings, you know, as, as time and capability allow. That's the ideal. Man, I'm all in. I love it. This is music to my ears. I've been beating the drum against like the, the education system for, well, since we left it. It wasn't until we left it and looked at it from, you know, an outsider looking in and, and from first principles that you realize what it is and what it's become and what it was actually ever meant to be. And, um, you know, just a way to organize society and uh, create factory workers or soldiers. And it's pretty much the same system. So what you're doing, I think, is absolutely incredible. And this, this ties in nicely, actually, to, to what I want to talk about, because I've been hearing you talk about the virtual wave a lot. And obviously, your, your first book was The Mobile Wave. So one, I, I'm, I'm, I'm getting to thinking perhaps there's a, a new book coming out at some stage called The Virtual Wave. But this idea of everything going virtual and what you've faced at MicroStrategy, pretty much going from brick and mortar company to virtual company in the course of days and taking on brick and mortar educational system and taking that virtual as well. Where else are we going to go virtual? And and are you going to write another book? You know, um, I wrote The Mobile Wave. And, uh, you know, the, I kind of lay it on a future, which is a future where Apple, Amazon, Facebook, and Google dematerialize everybody. And, and uh, I think I made $50,000 in royalties on that book and nobody read it. <laughs> <laughs> On the other hand, you invest $50 million in those stocks, you would have made 10 to 20x your money. So, so it the lesson I learned, by, by the way, I invested in the stocks, made a lot of money. My company got the benefit of me marketing the book, you know, and I got 50,000 in royalties. And, and I made a promise to myself, if this happens again, I'm not going to write the book. I'm going to buy the thing as much of it as I could possibly buy. And then I'll talk about it. And so the virtual wave is kind of an inversion of that. You know, I, the company invested its $500 million in the virtual wave. And in this case, it's virtual gold or virtual <laughs> monetary energy called Bitcoin. And uh, I'll talk about it, but nobody wants to read books anymore. At least <laughs> by the time they read the book, it'll be over. So, you know, authors don't really get the rewards. You know, you have to actually take action. So, yeah, maybe one day I'll write the book, but I kind of rather think that people, they learn via, uh, via YouTube podcast and podcast and YouTube videos and the like. So you're probably better off just to take action and tweet about the thing, which is how I feel about that. But let's talk about the yeah. virtual wave. I mean, the virtual wave is is uh, fascinating. The mobile wave was the dematerialization of a lot of stuff that could touch a mobile device. The virtual wave is the dematerialization, dematerialization of a bunch of other stuff, uh, a bunch of people, a bunch of processes, a bunch of products. And if we take, let's take university or education, you know, 
the virtual wave has really accelerated the dematerialization of education and the decomposition of it. I don't think people in the education business even understand what's happened because the first thing that happens is you shut down the campuses and then people start to go online and they attend classes online. But if you think about it, as soon as you start to attend classes online, you realize that, you know, maybe the platforms you're using aren't right. And maybe the teacher you've got doesn't teach very well online. And then you're, you're sitting in a very slow slot, you know, stodgy lecture. And then you go on YouTube and you realize you can get find a better lecture online on YouTube from someone that isn't at your university. So if I'm really going to learn thermodynamics, you know, online from my professor at MIT, maybe I would better rather learn thermodynamics online from the person that won the Nobel Prize, or maybe I'd rather go to the Khan Academy, or you know, or I'm going to study the history of Winston Churchill, or or somebody like that. Maybe I'll just go online and listen to the speech myself. Maybe I'll just go online and learn from Winston Churchill himself. He gave a speech. I might find that on YouTube. So it starts to screw with your, your views. When, when I talk to my <clears throat> executives, I say, you know, you can now zoom anywhere at the speed of light and you can bend time and space. So what are you going to do with that power? And the bending of time and space twists, it screws with people because they don't really, nobody, everybody likes the idea that, oh, I can stay home and Zoom somewhere. That's, so, that's not that threatening. Okay, here's the threatening part. We used to have 40 hours worth of meetings in person and 75% of it was a presentation. And then we went virtual. We found that we could just ask people to, record the presentation as a video and submit it in advance of the meeting. And so now my 40 hours of meetings became eight hours of meetings. And you know what happens if I give you a two hour video of all my thoughts, you run it at 150% speed. No, when you're watching something for entertainment, you watch it at one hour equals one hour. But when you're listening to someone for educational purposes, you listen to one hour equals an hour and a half or one hour equals two hours. So you speed listen because most people talk kind of slow and take a while to get to the point and it drives you nuts. So you're immediately more productive. And then of course they start telling you something you already know. So you skip. So when you're actually listening for education, you go twice as fast and you might go four times as fast. So now it changes your view, which is why would I invite 25 people to a meeting to listen to someone talk for an hour? I could just send 25 people the video and they can figure it out. But half the people already know the stuff before they get the video. They already know it. Only three people in the meeting that are learning anything. And so now you start saying, well, what if I had the ability to learn everything I wanted on demand at my speed when I want to? And then the next thing is, well, why do I got to learn it from you? Well, in business, what that means is our 40 hours of meetings become four hours of meetings. Okay, you had to comp what am I going to do with the rest of my time? Okay, I, I want to suggest another disturbing idea for you. What if every time you met with me, I already knew what you were going to say before you opened your mouth? 
you know, what would our meetings consist of? Like, <laughs> like, let's say you work for me and, and you run engineering and I already know everything you're going to say and every presentation before our meeting starts. So the meeting starts like it used to be very comforting. Like you lecture me for 45 minutes. And at the end of the meeting, I ask a couple of questions. We talk, you get to warm up in the virtual wave. The meeting starts at 8 a.m. And it goes like this. Click, click. How are you, Dan? I'm good. So, Dan, why is it going to take you six weeks to do that with four people? Why can't you do it with two people in two weeks? And I don't really want that feature. And you go, well, I, I guess we could do that. And I said, well, so, and if you do this, can we do this, this, and this? You're like, well, I thought so, but I can't do it. Last thing. Okay, so let's do the first seven things and do it in half the time with half the people, right? Okay, click. 8.03 a.m., meeting done. Yes. But what do I do? Like, like a three-minute meeting? The only reason to have a meeting with anybody anymore is negotiation, interrogation, collaboration. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to interrogate you and collaborate a little bit and negotiate, and then we're going to settle, and the meeting's over. So why would anybody ever come to a meeting that isn't going to be party to the negotiation? So that 40 people in the meet in the room that took 40 hours becomes like four people in 15 minutes. And now what are you supposed to do with yourself? Now let's take that to education. <clears throat> well, everybody got kicked out of school. Well, so the next thing is I got to educate, you got to educate your daughters yourself. So now you, you're not limited to what the teacher at school, you know, you have a fourth grade teacher What's the odds that they're the world's best geometry teacher? Not high. What's the odds that they're the best, you know, history teacher? Not high. What's the odds that they're kind of average and, and moderately mediocre in every possible way? Pretty high. You know, if they're the world's best musician or world's best mathematician or world's best teacher, they would be doing it in front of an audience of 800,000 people, right? And they are by the way, on YouTube or somewhere. <laughs> okay, so it kind of sends you into this interesting spiral, which is, why don't I just go and put together a stack of things for my family to learn, and then why don't they learn them at their own rate? Right, there's that, that, that classic, right? You're really gonna handcuff everybody to a desk and make them listen for eight hours straight, and they're gonna get one hour of this and one hour of this and one hour of this and one hour of this. And if they're smarter than everybody else in the class, they get dumbed down. And if they're dumber or they're slower than everybody in the class, they get left behind. And if everybody in the class goes exactly at the same rate in a regimented fashion for 18 years or for 12 years, then you get to graduate from high school. So what do we do? We had a, a, a regimented, mediocre 12-year slog, which tests your um, fortitude and your patience. And if anybody gets out of control, we dose them with Adderall. You know, give them a prescription drug. So that doesn't make a lot of sense. And uh, what does make a lot of sense? By the way, you want another interesting observation, Dan? <clears throat> Since the virtual wave hit, if someone asked to meet with me, I get really irritated at having someone present to me IRL like in real life, or that's to say, if you're presenting to me where one minute equals one minute, and I don't have a stop, start, skip button and a speed up button on you, 
it's really an imposition. It makes me impatient. Like, I'm very impatient now. Like, another way to say it is like, you wanted to spend two hours of my Monday talking to me about something. Why didn't you submit the video in advance so that I could cover your two hours in like 37 minutes on a Saturday afternoon so that I could actually reclaim my time during the working day to do something useful? I'm irritated that you're forcing me to take 120 minutes and think as slowly as you speak, right? But, but it's everybody can listen 50% faster than you can talk. Everybody. Yeah. Try it. Go back on YouTube, pick anything, punch it up to 150%. Okay. So now don't you think I just gave you a third of your life back? And by, and so now let's take that to school. Let's apply that to 16 years of education. Can you imagine putting a billion people through 16 years of 2000 hours of mediocre regimented authoritarian, you know, force-fed, uh, lowest common denominator, you know, dogma. Mm -hmm. It's like, it sounds like a recipe for brainwash mediocrity or at least, but forget about the, you know, your value, your view as to whether it's a better or worse way to educate someone. Doesn't it sound like an expensive way to do it? It's like custom manufacturing everything. So how about a better way to do it? What if I just uploaded everything you wanted to know as streaming on demand from kindergarten all the way through 20th grade? And then what if the parents or, you know, maybe you want to homeschool your children, but maybe what you want to do is gather with a neighborhood group. If you want your children to be together for social reasons, Maybe the emergence of a, of, a, of a village or neighborhood school system where there's one tutor and that one tutor guides the children. And if you've got a daughter that's going to actually get through calculus of variations by age 14, fine. Let her go that fast. If you have, you know, someone that wants to learn civil engineering, you know, when I, I went to school. You were allowed to learn uh, Latin or Spanish. I think maybe French, French or Latin or Spanish. Those were your three choices. Okay. So like, what, what was the odds I was going to master Russian or Chinese? It was like, I wasn't getting that. Now you think about it today and you think, well, why can't we just give everyone the ability to learn everything for free whenever they want? And the answer is, well, we can. So I, I think you've got three, three things in the education establishment right now that are vying, contending with each other. Uh, on one hand, you've got the mission of educating and you can take, um, what is this? Like a trillion dollar a year industry, something, it's some God awful expensive thing. You can take that and collapse that by a factor of a thousand or 10,000. Like if the United States government invested a million, a billion or two, uh, a few billion dollars a year, they could upload all of the courseware and just about everything you could imagine and maintain it every year for like 0.1% of the amount of money we spend on education. So the, the production of education intellectually, that's a problem that can be solved technically. And the second problem you have is the certification regulation, you know, of education. It's like, you know, I used to meet with people and I go, you know, we can teach uh, all these courses 
in um, in Virginia. You know, we could like provide free education uh, for all the nurses in Virginia on 75% of their courses. And the person's like, well, that's good. We're not going to give that to West Virginia, are we? We don't want them to have it. I'm like, well, but, you know, but. Okay, I'm about to say, well, you know, we can actually give it to Pakistan and India and the world. And they're angry that we're going to give it to West Virginia. Because we only want to do that in Virginia. Because we can't have people from other states getting the benefit of that. So there's an entire education establishment that wants to control uh, control uh, this by a certification and registration and licensing. That's a political problem. It's not a technical problem at all. <clears throat> you have to actually find somebody that wants to educate the world. Most of what we have is all about uh, creating scarcity and the credentials, right? We all know about digital scarcity. <laughs> There's a lot of creating scarcity of educational credentials in order to hold prices up. And then the third part of education, right, is is the uh, is the country club, nursery school, babysitter, you know, bricks and mortar aspect. That's just in loco parentis, you know, from K through 20, you know, something to do. That's not going to be solved quickly and easily by technology. What happened this year is people had to stop and reassess their views on education. Now, um, you asked about virtual wave. I just, I think this is just rippling like a wave through everything. The real question is, to what degree can you virtualize and dematerialize the product or the service? And, and it's a cultural issue as well as a political issue, more so than a technical issue. <clears throat> but I rather think, I, I think when the dust settles, when the dust settles, I think uh, people are going to realize that a lot of concepts are obsolete and they need to be reformed in a, in a different fashion because of the virtual wave. The way, especially the concept of local, for example, I, I, say to, I say to people, the definition of local is you speak my language and you're in my time zone. Like you're awake in my time zone. We're local right now as long as you speak fluent English and you're awake. And, and to the extent that you're not awake and you can't speak my language, then you're different. So if I redefine that, then, then what's the point of having local schools and local universities and local businesses and local practitioners, like, like a local doctor? If a, you know, at some point, local accountants, local service providers, all that's bending. And this, you know, when that happens, the second thing that happens is you start to ask the question, what can be automated and what requires a person? And the third thing that happens is it totally breaks down all the labor barriers because why can't I, you know, have the labor coming from Eastern Europe and then why couldn't it come from any jurisdiction? And what if I don't know what the jurisdiction is? And, and so you've, you've got a massive um, heat exchange Heat, uh, a balancing of, uh, of energies where instead of hiring a, why do I want to hire a $250,000 a year accountant if I can find someone that speaks English, that knows accounting, that costs 25000 a year, that lives somewhere else? As long as they're, if you work the late shift, late shift 
in Europe, it's the same as working the normal shift in the U.S. And so that means somebody in Lithuania is just as local as someone in New Jersey if they speak English and they want to download New Jersey tax code. And uh, that, I think that's going to ripple through everything and a lot of things. And there's good to it and there's bad to it. And, the, uh, you know, the implications, it, a lot of people haven't quite grasped yet, but they're, but they're happening pretty rapidly. So rapidly. And you are clearly at the forefront of this. And what, what kind of blows me away and, and many of the other uh, Bitcoiners in the space that have um, seen you like, uh, come into Bitcoin, understand it, like the, the way you understand it and the way that you tweet about it and um, very, so far deep down the rabbit hole, that was such a quick fall down to, to grasp all of those. It's taken me like five years like just to try and piece all this together. So either your your mind is just rapid and it just gets all of these things and puts the uh, pieces of the puzzle together, or I don't know, this, like, this virtual wave that you're talking about, the Bitcoin wave that you're talking about, you, you've been CEO of MicroStrategy for 31, 32 years. Is that right? Yeah, since 1989. Right. And now I, I'm just wondering, what do the people around you what do they see? What, what, what do they, like, all of a sudden, we were doing business one way, 30 years of doing business and slight iterations, and now all of a sudden, completely on its head. And I, I've heard you say before, you were the kind of CEO that would never even think about remote work. Now you've flipped that on the head and you see the virtual wave clearer than anyone. You can talk about it clearer than anyone. You've gone so balls deep into Bitcoin, it's just absolutely mind-boggling. <laughs> what are people around you, that they must just see like this completely different person? Or, or are you prone to these kind of U-turns before? <laughs> well, first of all, the job of the CEO is, is to guide the organization and to react to changes in the environment. So it's no different than the job of every leader of every organization right now. And and what you have is some people taking decisive action. There's plenty of them. I'm not the only one. I, I'm, I'm probably a, an obvious one in Bitcoin. I'm not the only one in Bitcoin. There are a lot of other very decisive movers in Bitcoin. You know, Stone Ridge is a very decisive mover in Bitcoin. You know, what Jack Dorsey's doing at Square is very decisive in Bitcoin. You know, what PayPal is doing is very decisive in Bitcoin. So there's a lot of decisiveness going on. Um, I, you should give yourself credit, Dan. And I, I pointed this out to Dan Hell too. You know, so you took five years to figure it out, but I had you. I had five years of you figuring out to accelerate me. Right. The the basis of crypto is this idea of proof of work, and and the idea of proof of work is you exert an obscene amount of time and energy, or obscene amount of energy and and encryption power, in order to solve a problem, which then it's very it's a billion times quicker for every other node to validate that you solved the problem, that you did the work. So the asymmetry is the secret to how the network works. And so how do things spread in time? Like, uh, for example, I'm an engineer. I'm not a science. Newton, you want geniuses, Newton, Einstein, 
Mozart, Beethoven, they extracted stuff from the ether that you couldn't do in a million years, that I couldn't do in a million years. If I tried a billion years, I couldn't do it. I mean, for thousands of years, humanity worked without the calculus of variations and calculus. And Newton, that one guy, probably contributed 90% of everything around us. That one person looked up and extracted so much physics, astrophysics. Now, took him a lot of work or a lot of something. How about every single math student that came along after him? How long did it take them to figure out that calculus was useful? Like, you think it's hard for me to figure out that calculus is useful? No, an engineer figures it out. I'm an engineer. I'm a very, pra I, I'm not, um, a, a, an engineer is not um, dogmatic or, or, or um, what would be religiously against things that work. I give you a chip. I give you a math. I give you a, a component. I give you steel. Okay, it's not, by the way, is it hard to figure out that steel is a good thing? Not really. Is it, how hard is it to build a building with steel? It, it, it takes some effort. Do you want a steel building? Yeah. If I gave you $500 million and I said, build a big building, would you use steel? Yeah. Now, could you invent steel? Could you create the first steel factor, a steel refinery? That's hard. Right? Steel refineries blow up. They kill everybody. Right. We could spend 10,000 years trying to work that out. That's uh, if you ever studied, you know, metallurgy, right? Materials. When you get to the part where you're studying steel, it's pretty intense. And, and uh, they give you all these um, thick books, thousand pages, steam tables, you know, and and, uh, you know, what's the right amount of carbon to mix into, you know, <laughs> into iron to get steel? Very complicated. I look at it and I think I would never in a million years want to have to have figured that out, but I'm happy to accept the gift. Yeah. I'm happy to accept it. And, and so proof of work is like someone did a lot of work, but you don't have to be as, you don't have to have as much horsepower to figure out that the hash function is right as you did to actually do it in the first place. And that's why this stuff spreads fast because you did your work, Dan did his work, VJ did his work, right? All of the, all the maximalists did their work. <clears throat> they had less information and they had more uncertainty. And so it, it took a lot more effort. You had to think more deeply. I did my work, but I had a lot more information. It only took me a few months, to, you know, a month to come to the conclusion because I had a lot more information. Then... I invested 20 years worth of earnings in a few weeks. Okay. I took 20, you know, you talk about work, right? I took 20 years of energy and I put it on the blockchain in four weeks. And then I made it public. I published the hash function, right? And I said, I did all my work. I looked at everybody else's work. And then I printed a block and my block is $500 million or actually $600 million worth of energy. That was the total nominal amount of cash I put into the blockchain. And I put it out there and now I leave it as an issue. If you have $600 million 
you can go back and spend six years and do what Dan Prince did, or you can do what Vijay Boyapati did, or you can do what Dan Hell did, and you can think about that. Or you can spend the one month and you can go to hope.com and read everything Michael Saylor read. Or you can skip that and you can just say, hey, here's a dude that put $600 million into the blockchain because he thinks it's the first true digital monitoring network in the history of the world. And it's the Facebook of money. And, and I think what people don't get, like uh, not everybody gets, I think they don't realize there's investors out there. They're just looking for an idea this month. I have, a, I have $10 billion. I have to put $500 million in something. Okay, what's this idea? Okay, guy puts $500 million into Bitcoin. Why? Well, because he thinks it's the ultimate safe haven asset. It's better than gold. And it's going to be like Facebook. Yeah, and, and he put the $500 million in? Yeah, let me read that again. Uh, Okay, give me some of that. They don't have to go down the rabbit hole, right? They don't have to do the work that you did any more than a node has to do the work to validate that the block is good. They just have to read the hash, right? It's a, it's a, it's a question of do they trust me, right? And by the way, not everybody does, but you don't got to convince everybody, Dan. You just got to convince anybody. Right. There's ten thousand billion dollar entities. All you got to do is convince a handful of them. And by the way, I don't you don't have to convince them as much as me. I said, well, I've looked at it. It makes sense that I'm going to put substantially all of my free cash into this. You know, at the company level, I had five hundred million in cash. I'm going to either buy my stock back or buy Bitcoin with it as fast as I can. But you wouldn't have, I mean, that's a, that's a treasury reserve asset commitment. You could copy that, but you could also say, well, I'm Paul Tudor Jones. I have 10 billion. I'll just put 500 million into this. That's a much lesser commitment. You know, there are people that'll put 500 million into a bad idea. If you've got a hundred billion in your portfolio, you might, you might bet 500 million expecting you'll get a hundred to one return 1% of the time or 5% of the time. I think that's a good idea. So, so I think that's why, uh, you know, everything's accelerating, right? And, and it's, it's a fire, right? It's a, as I said, it's a campfire, then it's a bonfire, then it's a forest fire. And you're like, well, I don't get it. Why is the fire like spreading twice as fast? Well, because it's an exponential process because it's, because it's spreading twice as fast because twice as many at the end of the day, by the way, it's, it's important that 100 million people embrace Bitcoin, but there's 10 people, 10 people that can triple the price of Bitcoin. 10. Hmm. Right. This is this is not like Facebook. I make this point like nobody ever brought a billion friends to Facebook. This is not like Facebook. This is like when a person with 10 billion dollars decides that they want to adopt this network and they put two or three billion dollars on the network. That's going to be more monetary energy that flowed in the network than the first 10 million people put in the network. It's a 10 million to one game. Yep. But, you know, here's the other thing. When a person with $10 billion puts $10 billion on the network, they've got a friend with $10 billion. Right? Warren Buffett plays bridge with Bill Gates. Right. You know, and then they talk with Mark Zuckerberg. So when this hits that social network, it's mm -hmm. like... Okay, well, a billion to two billion to four billion to eight billion. And those four decisions, those four blocks, 
have more impact on a network than the first 10 million blocks. And so that's what's driving uh, Bitcoin and what, uh, what I expect is going to drive it. But we all, we all stand on the shoulders of somebody, right? I mean, that his, human civilization and engineering is based on the idea that you figure out how someone else worked this out. You copy it and then you do it. And uh, if, if you try to reinvent the wheel yourself, right, no chance. You got, <laughs> at some point, you got to figure out who you're going to trust. Are your friends and family, like, do, do they question, are you like the rest of us, annoying Bitcoin guy at the dinner table? You know, it's like, it gets in your head, doesn't it? And then pretty soon it just kind of, you can't get it out of your head. You start talking about it. Uh-huh. Yeah, like what- Mac, Max Kaiser, the high priest of Bitcoin. He's like, you know, it's Bitcoin, Bitcoin, Bitcoin. It's going to get you. It's going to cleanse you. I, I love Max. I think... I, you know, and a lot of people, they don't understand it until they understand it and then they get it. It's like that conversation with, uh, with Keith McCullough, you know, and it's like, he's going, well, when I sell Bitcoin and I said, well, Keith, if you understood Bitcoin, you could never sell Bitcoin. Like nobody that understands it could sell. If you're trading it, you don't understand it. You know, it's a shiny object, like a lure spinning at the end of a fish hook. And you're you're thinking somehow that you're playing with the stupid shiny object, like juggling fire or something, and it hasn't occurred to you. You know, I give you the gift of fire. You can change the civilization. It's the most important thing of humanity. And you're trying to juggle these little sparklers on the Fourth of July, right? You either get it or you don't get it. But once you get it, you're like, well, hey, we invented fire here. Let me. I got to explain this to you. This is important. This is a big deal. It's not a shiny lure at the end of a fish hook. That interview, uh, uh, thanks on behalf of the whole Bitcoin community for going on. I couldn't watch half of it just because of the other guy and uh, how disingenuous he is. Uh, And then when he followed up with um, the the (laughs) comments and the whole thing, the the guy is just... Yeah. Are you blocked, by the way? Are you part of the blocks brigade? I'm not blocked. I noticed all the hornets got blocked. I thought that was really funny. I thought that was great, but look, well, the memes- he's got a, he's got some people you know, on Hedgeye and we want them to hear about Bitcoin. And so it's an opportunity to spread Bitcoin. And if he talks about Bitcoin, then that's good for Bitcoin. And so I think we got to, we got to deal with that. I, I'm obviously, I'm not a big fan of traders and, uh, and financiers. Like, in general, I think when we when we start to talk about trading and when we characterize Bitcoin as oh it's a call option it's an it's an uncorrelated asset you know I've got this macroeconomic model you know what I want to do is I want to shake all these people and say I give you the gift of fire it's elevating the human race above the animals and and it's going to be the key to human civilization and us spreading throughout the galaxy. And you want to juggle it? <laughs> this is nuts. Anyway, um, when we, when we hit all time high, perhaps send him over a bottle of screaming eagle, screaming eagle cab sav just to, uh, so he can cry into uh, a glass of that. But uh, I want to ask you about uh, micro strategy. Have you had, have any of the employees reached out to you about this? What's, what's been the, within within um within the company you know we have a very technically uh adept 
employee base. You know, they're software engineers. We create software. We we sell software. We support the software. We build applications, and 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 all the software is about intelligence. So, so this has been a, I think, a real shot in the arm. I mean, I think they really they like this. They're excited about Bitcoin. They're excited about the uh, about the potential of crypto. Um, I think uh, it's been a real great source of enthusiasm, and and uh, it's good for morale for us to be doing a good thing and be uh, forward thinking with regard to the technology. And it opens up a lot of really nice opportunities for the company. Yeah, tons. And I wanted to ask you about, is there any, are you already thinking about things that you can build out to support Bitcoin, new Bitcoin companies that are coming into the space that need business intelligence? Is that thing that, uh, that you guys are already looking at and thinking about? Yeah, yeah, we are. I mean, one of the reasons we want to run our own node, and in addition to just generally contributing to network security and, and uh, selfishly protecting our own interest, we also think that's a great source of of uh, clean data. And so we use the node to extract the blockchain and the blockchain becomes our data set. And that data set is, of course, quite interesting to anybody with the $250 billion of money on the blockchain and all those wallets. We've got, um, we've got some really good technology for manipulating and analyzing data sets. And we've got a hyper-intelligence technology for creating hypercards that give you insight into uh, those large um, data sets. And so, so what you'll see is uh, what we're going to do next is start to release hyper-intelligence for, um, for the blockchain or for, for the Bitcoin blockchain. And uh, I think that'll be interesting to the community. And then, um, and then make that hyper-intelligence available in a, in a SaaS multi-tenant environment so that anybody can build their own Bitcoin-related hypercards in a matter of minutes. And then they can embed them in those applications and they can use them in order to, um, in order to enrich their offerings or to make better decisions. And, and we'll follow up with other technologies, business intelligence technology that's plugged right into um, to the blockchain data set. And what's, what's your thoughts around like the, the, the pushback against um, chain analysis and that being bad for, for privacy and for, for people mm. that have you know, been hodling on the blockchain for, for many years and would prefer privacy over analytics? Um, I think that there's um, a pretty rich market right now of different companies providing different capabilities all integrated with the bitcoin standard right and and so you've got for, for those people that want to self custody right if you if i'm the crypto anarchist you know and i want to be ready for after the zombie apocalypse whatever you know when the internet goes down there's offerings for them and that's good if I want to, if I want to hold all of my uh, my own monetary energy, there's offerings for them. And if I want extreme privacy, you've got Zcash, you've got Monero. There's a competitive market for privacy, right? And and which one will win? Will Zcash win? Will Monero win? Will something else win? Unclear. We will find out. Um, 
there's a competitive market for crypto banks like Kraken and they're regulated in Wyoming and there's KYC obligations. And there's plenty of people that want to buy Bitcoin on a regulated KYC bank, right? I mean, and why would you? Because it's illegal not to. <laughs> like I, 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 I can't go ahead and buy on a decentralized exchange without KYC as a public company officer, right? So Fidelity and Coinbase and Kraken, they all have their place. Now, Binance has a much richer offering, has more has the spot market against the futures market. And I, when I go to Binance, I salivate. I'm like, oh, this is great, man. All the, Wouldn't it be cool to short the forward and buy the spot and lock in the spread and and then I read the part where it says, except if you're a U.S. citizen. I'm like, okay, well, not for me. But it's out there for somebody. Mm-hmm. And how do I feel about it? Am I going to leave the United States so that I can trade on Binance? No. Like, do I think it's good for Bitcoin? Yes. Now, if Bitcoin was known as the network of absolute, complete privacy, it would be counterproductive to the interest of Bitcoin. Because right now, the regulators in most countries, there's, there's two use cases, there's multiple use cases, right? There's one use case, store of value over a long period of time. There's another use case, medium of exchange for coffee. There's a third use case, buying stuff in an uncensored way so that governments can't stop. There are three different use cases. Now, which of the three is most important? I happen to think there's a $250 trillion value to store a value. What's it? We can store all $250 trillion that's in bonds and equity and precious metals and investment commercial real estate on the blockchain, on the Bitcoin network, with the current bandwidth, with the current, uh, with the current block size, with the current settlement speeds, we can store all $250 trillion forever and keep it safe for 100 years, 200 years, 500 years. Is that valuable? Yeah. Is that enough? Yeah, actually, that's enough. Like, do you need to have more value proposition than 250? Let me say it again. We can store $250 trillion forever. Okay, so you think there's a problem with the value proposition of a $250 billion network? I don't think so. Boy, one day there'll be more than $250 trillion. We can store, what's like $2,500 trillion? How much is that? It's a lot of money, right? Quadrillion something? We can store that much money on the network forever. That's enough. It's good. Now, you want to buy a pizza or a coffee? Would I use Bitcoin Cash? No, I would use Apple Pay. I would use, you know, would I use Square or PayPal? I wouldn't even use PayPal or Square, right? I mean, I wouldn't bother to download another tool. <clears throat> I would use Apple Pay, but you might use Square or you might use PayPal or you might use, you know, Google Pay or you might use something on Amazon. Am I going to use a crypto network? No, probably not. I just, I, I if you're doing something which is, uh, compliant with and, and is not multi-jurisdictional, you don't need a crypto. 
you absolutely need a crypto, a store of value for the next you know, 500 years across all jurisdictions. It's pretty obvious if you want virtual gold, you need crypto. You don't need crypto to buy a pizza. It's a silly notion. It's silly to say you're going you're gonna to run Bitcoin 20 times faster by doubling the block side because, because uh, Apple Pay is going to run it 20 billion times faster. Oh, but like if I'm a criminal on the run, I can't order a pizza with Apple Pay. Yeah, I guess. Give me a list. Like what percentage of the world is concerned about that use case? I don't think many. So I don't I don't really see the value proposition for routine medium of exchange being dominated by crypto. I think that centralized networks. Right. Look, the real question is, will Square be able to compete against Apple Pay? That's the question. That's the hard thing. There is zero chance that a crypto network is competing against Apple Pay. And there is zero need because the average person doesn't need to put more than 5% of their monetary energy into a mobile wallet in any given period, right? If you had if you had $100,000, you're putting 95,000 in a savings account, 5,000 in a checking account, if that, maybe 2,000 in a checking account, and then you sweep it in. So. So for your sweep working capital accounts, you're going to use centralized banks, mobile banks, or conventional banks. And that takes me to privacy. Is there a place for privacy and censorship resistance? Sure, there is. Um, who's going to do it? Uh, probably some special purpose crypto network will develop it. What's wrong with just sweeping your money into that thing at you know, if what you want to do is have a bunch of non-censorable, you know, non-trackable pure cash transactions, do that. Is there compliance risk? Yeah, a lot. Right. Will will governments attack it? Certainly. You know, will the Chinese? You bet. Right. They're they're attacking Bitcoin. What do you think they do about privacy coin? Right. Well, the Russians, the Russians have not have not shut down Bitcoin, but they'll shut down privacy coin. Well, the American government, probably, like it seems to me like it's putting a bullseye in your forehead. So you have a choice. If you, Jeff, I'm sorry, Daniel, I'll ask you this question. Um, if you had a choice, you could make Bitcoin completely private, uncensorable, dark web, untraceable tomorrow. Or you could wait for Bitcoin's price to go to a million dollars. And then we could talk about it again. Which of the two would you choose? It's yeah, it's a great question, and I, I I'm see I, I get turned upside down on this because I the non KYC and the KYC coin uh, debate, and I think um, if in five to ten years time we have a two tiered market for for these coins, I think most people are just assuming that. The, the non-KYC coins are going to trade higher. I think it could be the other way around because we'll be we'll be so so much further down the road where Bitcoin is so much more acceptable by so many more people and, and um, more regulations and governments around the world that the the non-KYC coins could be the ones with taint, as we use in air coin uh, air quotes, um, might trade at a discount. Whether well, this Dan, actually, Dan, you've got a two-tier market now. Like you've got one. It's called Zcash and Monero and Bitcoin. You have a two-tier market. 
the market's already put a price on them. You can go figure it out. The price of a privacy coin is trading at one two hundredth or one one hundredth of the price of Bitcoin. The market's mm. already given you the answer. But by, by the way, it's common sense. Who do you think's got more money in the world? The people, the institutions that are subject to government uh, jurisdiction and regulation or people that aren't subject to regulatory jurisdiction. Like, for example, you think I could buy a non-KYC coin? No. No, like, I can't. Like, you think it's a debate? Like, you think, you think there's a debate there? You think I had an option? Do you think that any institutional investor in the world has an option to choose whether or not they'll go the KYC channel or the non-KYC channel? There's not a single institution. No one that's going to invest more than $10 million in Bitcoin could possibly go the non-KYC route. And maybe no more than maybe a million is a cutoff. I don't know what the number is, but here's what I can tell you off the top of my head. 99% of the money has to be going through a KYC route, which means 99% of the value of Bitcoin is based upon the fact that it's not threatening to the status quo. What do you think happens to any bank that says to the United States government, we're not going to report the $10,000 wire transfers? What happens to that bank? <laughs> and how long would it take for that to happen? Yeah. Okay, so you run a bank, Daniel. The bank's got $250 billion in it. You have a choice. Your bank can become 100 times bigger, and you can comply with some to some degree, or... You can send a letter to the local government saying you've chosen not to comply and not all, you're going to do everything you possibly can to not comply. Your bank's going to go to zero. You know, maybe if you're lucky, it'll go to 1% of what it is. Um, and, and again, what did you gain there? Like, what was the benefit? Because 99% of the money simply uh, 99% of the money doesn't have a choice. They can't one way or the other. And we can have an intellectual debate, a philosophical debate about the virtues of privacy and, and censorship resistance versus the virtue of um, store of value. But here's one thing that's uh, pretty clear. The likelihood that a politician will allow you to engineer a system that that stores monetary energy without power loss is much higher than the likelihood that a politician will let you engineer a system to launder money. <laughs> I mean, it's yep. kind of that simple, right? If you say to people, Bitcoin is, uh, is virtual gold and you can hold and, and it works better than gold and that, and we're going to use it because it's a monetary energy network that doesn't uh, have a power bleed. It's, it's a, it's an engineering system. I get it. Bitcoin. Yeah. Bitcoin is a way to 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 avoid the ten thousand dollar limit on wire transfers and KYC. That's an altogether different thing. That's a different battle. I don't think that's the battle you win. And so when I say it's counterproductive, I think that um, if Bitcoin was hijacked by the uh, privacy extremist, 
it would probably kill the network. But by the way, if you really wanted that, why don't you just go to Zcash? Like you've mm. already got it, right? You've already got it with Monero or Zcash or something. So if you really, if that's what you want, why don't you take your money, the mo you want to be private and just move? I'm not being snarky. I'm serious. Like take your money and put the amount that you want to be private in a privacy wallet on Zcash. And the upside is you'll have the privacy and the downside is you have the risk of them shutting down the entire network. And you live with that. And that's, that's life. Yeah, I'm fine with Bitcoin. Thanks. Um, that's, that's, that's all for me. Um, I wonder it's the, the main, the main thing about the privacy thing is, and, and we, I think, you know, we're coming obviously from completely different ends of the spectrum here. Many people that have been stacking away for the last, however long, um, truly believe that they're going to become wealthier than they've ever been before. And that's, that's the fear, I think, where this privacy things come from, that they don't want to be a target. Whereas you've been a, a very wealthy person for, for a long time, you've probably never ever felt threatened or um, personally uh, attacked for, for making your first million dollars sort of thing. Whereas most people on the street here that have been stacking their sets, they've never had that. They can't, they still can't get to that, get to that point. Well, I mean, um, but I guess my point here is I'm not against privacy and Bitcoin is not non-private, right? I mean, <laughs> there's a fair degree of privacy in the network. No one's publishing a list of the hundred thousand people that have the most money in Bitcoin, right? Well, I haven't seen that list, right? <laughs> Right. I mean, I, I haven't seen a list of the top 10, by the way. So, you know, there, there is a fair degree of privacy in Bitcoin right now. And if someone yeah. said, I like the virtue of privacy and I would like to not be outed, I don't disagree with them. I'm not in favor of like publishing a list of 50 million wallets along with the social security number and the address of the people. Right. Like all, what I'm saying is Bitcoin does what it does right now. And it's, it's been successful because it does what it does. I don't think you need to fix it. Like, for example, I don't think that I don't think that the lack of more privacy is an existential threat to Bitcoin. I don't think the network will be destroyed if you don't change it. I, I, I can embrace the idea like, you know, with like Taproot and Schnorr and, and uh and multi-sig and the like, I, I can embrace the fact that some upgrades will be bit, will be good for it, right? And there and there are there are incremental upgrades for security, for privacy, for scalability, and those are good things. So I, I understand we should do good things in a very careful fashion. I don't have another th other comments on that. I, I believe that. Uh, the fact that people have options is beneficial to the network, right? For, for, let me say it a different way. Like if you operate on Bitcoin and no one knows who you are ever and you're anonymous, well, that's a good thing. And the fact that, that there are, are you know, self-custody solutions where you never have to rely upon a KYC bank or, you know, or an exchange, or like that's a good thing. That keeps everybody honest. But, uh, you know, railing about railing against PayPal 
which is a totally different thing. It's like, well, you can choose not to use PayPal because you don't like the constraints that PayPal puts on you. And I respect that. On the other hand, if PayPal brings 100 million more users on the network, you'll benefit, even if you're that privacy advocate that doesn't want to be in that system, you'll benefit from it. In fact, every single time another bank or another provider brings on another uh, Bitcoin, uh, a Bitcoin service or Bitcoin product, it strengthens the entire network for everybody. We all beneficiary. I'm a beneficiary of what Binance is doing, even though I can't use Binance. And people that use PayPal to buy Bitcoin benefit from Binance. <clears throat> and hodlers that have their own hardware wallets that never would you that never use Binance, that never use PayPal, that you know that are disgusted at the anathema of KYC and disgusted at whatever anybody else might do, they benefit economically from the actions of other Bitcoin standard companies. And uh, I wouldn't be so judgmental. Everybody's got their own circumstances, right? It's like there's an orthodoxy, but like, but for the, for the guy that's got PayPal installed that wants to buy $1,000 worth of Bitcoin, telling them they can't do it in five seconds and they have to, like there's this thing with Bitcoiners, they talk about going down the rabbit hole. It's like, the guy wants to give you $1,000 and he's going to click once and put the 1000 in the network. Okay, that's one way. Or the other way is you can tell him to stop and attended a 90-day concentrated course for 500 hours of studying. And then he's got to buy 16 pieces of hardware and he's got to memorize 24 seed key phrases. And then he's got to create three backups and two safe deposit boxes. And then you beat him half to death so that he can like put $1,000 in the network. And the point is, that, I mean, for, for the long-term maximalists and the hardcore Bitcoiners, it's a rite of passage, and they love that. That's true, but, but I mean, why don't you just let the guy put the $1,000 on one click on the network and live his life? If it's going to double the price of, if it's going to double the value of your Bitcoin, do you really have to let the perfect be the enemy of the good? If Warren Buffett got up tomorrow morning and he just said, I want to buy $50 billion worth of Bitcoin. Just get it done. Are you guys all going to lay down in front of a tank and say he's not allowed to? He hasn't gone down the rabbit hole. He hasn't earned the right. He needs to memorize 24 seeds and get his own hardware wallet. And I, he better like go and read a bunch of stuff first because I would have talked to him about, you know, something or other. Or are you just going to take his money? Take the $50 billion. And your Bitcoin is going to triple in value. And it's going to be as private as the precautions that you took to keep it private. And if it's if Bitcoin is not private enough, maybe Taproot will make it better. Or, you know, and if that's not good enough, then maybe you'll move some over to Zcash. And there's always the next thing you can go to, right? I mean, make your decision. Let other people make their decision. The guy that operates... A, a guy that operates a regulated insurance company, they don't have the luxury of the debate over like, you know, the private hardware wallet seed key. You know, it's like they don't have the luxury. Oh, it's be empathetic. There's a dude that goes to work that's surrounded by 27 other people. 
And they don't have the ability to like hold their own keys and do this and that and the other thing. They can put a billion dollars on the network though. They're allowed to do that. And so you have to decide is, is, is Bitcoin inclusive to everybody? And by the way, if, if I'm in a country and they're going to draw and quarter me, if I do it that way, and my choice is I can either give you all my money and not die, or I can take my money and I can try to do it with a DeFi, dark network, stored hardware, asynchronous satellite uplink while on the run. And if they catch me, they're going to murder me and my family. It's like, you know, really, you got to shove your dogma down the guy's throat. Just take his money. He buys the thing. He doesn't have privacy. Maybe his government does whatever they're going to do. Maybe the person suffers. Maybe they don't suffer. What's the skin off your back? You benefited. The guy, the guy actually bought in the network. The network price of Bitcoin goes up. You're a beneficiary. So I think live and let live. I can't, right. I, maybe I can't have a, it's like the survivalist, you know, it's like some people <laughs> want to buy a flashlight and batteries. Some people want, you know, their own cabin in the woods. Some people want their cabin in the woods with their own generator. Some people want the cabin in the woods with their own generator and they're going to go ahead and become a doctor and they're going to stockpile antibiotics against the time when, you know, and then you could always have a little rowing machine to generate your own electricity when the sun goes out. There are different degrees, you know, of buying into the vision. Let everybody decide what they can do and, and, and make the, and, and keep in mind this one last point. Not everybody has a choice. Doesn't you can you can convince me? I don't have the power to do it the hardcore way, right? Even if you convince me, I just can't do it, right? And that's the difference between you know being open and inclusive, you know, and being exclusionary. The market will make the decision, and I think that I think that everybody should keep in mind in the crypto world. If PayPal doesn't give you the right to self-custody, that's an opportunity, right? They don't. You should be happy they don't because now you can. You can sell something that they're not selling, right? At the point that um, PayPal embeds it in their product, it gets harder for Square. At the point that Apple embeds it into Apple Pay, it gets harder for PayPal, right? Right. This thing rolls downhill. And as long as there's someone that's not solving the problem, if Coinbase is not giving you the privacy you like, well, then that's an opportunity for the Zcash people or, you know, the, you know, the, um, the decentralized exchange one way or the other. And if you're right in the world, in the marketplace and in, and in the world, then you will, your idea will prosper and it will grow. And if you're wrong, it will linger and get snuffed out. And that's Darwinism. So it is what it is. The market will decide. Best idea wins. Maybe lots of ideas win. Maybe just a few ideas win. We will see. But right now we have Bitcoin. And, you know, for me, it's it's pretty much perfect as it is. And it's been amazing to to see you come into the space and uh, and shout from the rooftops and um, tweet about it. Uh, your, your tweets are poetic, as some people are calling it. And, um, you know, great analogies as well. 
the famous one, the Cyber Hornet. So it's uh, it's brilliant. Um, do I have any time for a few last questions? Yeah, I just we should wrap it up in the next couple of minutes. But go ahead, last one. All right. Well, I always ask one question at the end of each show, and that is, if you had one orange pill left to give to someone, who would you give that to, and why? <laughs> You probably ought to give the orange pill to the richest man in the world <laughs> because he's the richest man in the world. There you go. <laughs> it's a monetary network, network after all. Exactly. And do you think, would you, I know you've said you've been very vocal in, in the fact that you would never sell uh, Bitcoin. This is something you're going to hodl for 100 years. Is there going to be a point where you will be paying employees or um, contractors or business suppliers in, in Bitcoin? When, when do you envisage? You know, I, first of all, I, I think that Bitcoin is the ideal treasury reserve asset. So for that reason, if you're selling it, you need to be selling it because there's some other asset that's better. And I don't see a better treasury reserve. I wouldn't sell it to buy a bond or a stock or a precious metal or real estate because I don't think those are better treasury reserve assets. If you're, if you're selling it, you probably need to be buying a jet or a yacht, you know, or your dream house, right? Some, or get married, right? You need to be buying something, a passionate thing, something of passion to save your child's life, right? I mean... I can come up with an idea uh, as to why I might sell, but it needs to be something that, that involves passion, not a personal thing, not something that involves an investment decision. So that's what I mean when I say that. Um, with regard to, uh, to paying people, I, I, I've articulated this before, but I think the point is uh, it's an asset. It's not a currency. I don't think it's a currency. Um, it, the tax code is hostile to using a crypto asset as currency. That is to say, every time, if I get paid a thousand times in Bitcoin, I have a thousand different taxable um, acquisitions at different bases. If I pay a thousand bills, I have a thousand different transactions and I have to mark the value of the Bitcoin to the price of uh, Bitcoin at the time I did it and calculate the capital gain or capital loss. The accounting is a million times harder. So notwithstanding the first observation, which is I'd have to spend years, five years and $10 million to rebuild all my accounting systems to do it. Doesn't make a lot of sense. My second observation is I don't think the accounting software companies could do it if I wanted them to. SAP, Oracle, JD Edwards, uh, Workday. I mean, the, these systems don't support that complicated accounting. So it, it's a massive systems problem. But the third point is, if your employees wanted Bitcoin, there's no employee of mine that wants 100% to be paid 100% in Bitcoin. What they want is to save Bitcoin, hodl Bitcoin. So why, as uh, an employer, would you presume to dictate to them how much they should have? Just pay them in the local fiat currency and then let them buy whatever they want, whenever they want it. Right. The, the, the natural way that a multinational would work is you're paying in 20 different currencies all your bills and you're receiving all your revenues and all the currencies and your accounting systems work that way. 
if you work for me, Daniel, I pay you. Uh, you take 20% of your salary, you buy Bitcoin. You take the other 80% of your salary, you pay your operating expenses. Your decision. Not my decision, right, as to, as to what you buy and when you buy it. Um, the employees get all the benefit. If employees really wanted Bitcoin, they have the ability to buy Bitcoin. No one's stopping them, right? Like, what if I told you I was going to pay you an Apple stock? Wouldn't you be a little bit irked at me? Like, isn't it kind of presumptive? Like, what if I told you I was going to pay you in bars of gold? Like, so I, like, I think that there's a, you know, there's a, there's a hardcore set of Bitcoiners that, that, love the idea of using it to replace the dollar. But again, now we're back to medium of exchange. And let me say it again, the value of a medium, what do you think the value of medium exchange is, Daniel, in the free market? If Bitcoin was as good a medium of exchange as Apple Pay, what would it be worth extra? Nothing. The value of a medium exchange is nothing. Zero. Nothing. Because Square, PayPal, Apple, Google, give it away for free to 7 billion people. And it works a billion times faster and better than, our, than Bitcoin Cash or Bitcoin Satoshi Vision or Bitcoin. It's, it's, it's an oddity. It's like an interesting, cool thing. It has no commercial value. What's the value of like duplicating YouTube's video server on the blockchain? We could do that. Nothing, right? What's the value of the third best social network? Nothing. <laughs> That's the problem. The best one has all the value. Once upon a time, they calculated, um, they calculated the amount of, of uh, profit in the mobile phone business, and they found that Apple Computer generated 150% of all the profits in the mobile phone business. Another way of saying, Apple made all the money and every other mobile phone provider lost money in aggregate competing in the space. The value of being in the business was nothing, zero. And so the value of uh, Bitcoin as a store of value is, in theory, up to $250 trillion. The value of Bitcoin as a medium of exchange is nothing. So, no, I don't think I'll pay my employees in Bitcoin. But no, it's not because I don't believe in Bitcoin. It's just because I think it's misguided intellectually to try to use Bitcoin like a YouTube streaming video network or use Bitcoin, you know, like Snapchat. I mean, like, heck, I could use Bitcoin like, you know, like Audible. Do you want to do your podcasting on Bitcoin? There's a million things people do with software. Just because you can do it in, with software doesn't mean you should do it. And I think that, you know, when we went down that fork, you know, and Roger, he went that, you know, Satoshi Vision and Bitcoin Cash, it was just a fork in the road. And they made this awful strategic mistake because you had a choice, store of value, medium of exchange. Medium of exchange is worth nothing to 7 billion people. It's a commodity. It's given away by Apple and Google. And by the way, and they can do it better because you only need about 1% to 2% of your monetary energy to be in a high-speed medium of exchange at any given time. 
store of value is impossible to be delivered. A company can't deliver it. A government can't deliver it. A centralized network can't deliver it. So one of these things was the most important value, the most important invention in the history of the world. And the other of these things was there's probably 1,000 payment networks better than a crypto payment, than the best crypto payment network. And the first one, or the you can probably name the first five or four. And I can't name the next 995. And so at the end of the day, the real, the key here is companies desperately need Bitcoin as a treasury reserve asset. They don't need to rip out their accounting systems. They don't need to rip out their, their payment systems. They don't need to rip out their payroll systems. They're not, but by the way, it's not that I don't get that it's valuable to do the settlement transaction. It's, there's a difference between saying, I'm not likely to use it versus saying we shouldn't have it. We, we, need, we need the work that goes in the Lightning Network. We need the BTC Pay server. We need the ability to do transactions peer-to-peer on the settlement network. Because it's the deterrent value, it's the ability to move the money from one bank to another bank or one counterparty to another counterparty. The fact that you know I could do it if I needed to do it, which is what keeps you honest. The, the, the freedom to transact, but the freedom to transact is extremely valuable, but the transaction speed and utility of doing it a billion times as frequently is not so valuable. So back to stoicism, just because you can do a thing doesn't mean you should do a thing. It's absolutely essential that Bitcoin should be able to transact. And if you know, if you're my bank and if you're my counterparty, if you're my government, and if you know I can transact, that's going to protect my asset a billion times a month. It's going to protect my asset billions and billions and billions and billions of times because every possible conceivable attack, right, might be thwarted by the fact that I have a back door. So it's important capability, but there's a difference between knowing you. It's like the gun in your house. You have a gun in your house. Maybe you want people that would do harm to you to know you have a gun in the house, but you don't fire off the gun 19 times a day. You're just going to hit yourself in the foot with the gun. So it's a deterrent. It's a, it's a nuclear deterrent, right? Just like the, the nuclear deterrent that maybe stops a war, maybe. I, that's the way I see transaction uh, capabilities on the blockchain. It's a very important deterrent. But, but to then decide that I got to use it just because I could use it, it takes me to another place. And that, that doesn't make any sense, nor is it necessary. Love it, man. Really, really. And I just got one last fun question for you. And you, you can be as okay. answers you like. Um, obviously, you, you, you've tweeted about running the node. Uh, have, you, have you considered asking your employees? To, to all spin up a note. How many do you have employees? 2,000 employees. 
Look, I mean, the amount of Bitcoin that we do, I announced we ran one node, but that's just what I put out in the public. I'm not going to tell everybody everything that we do just because it's inappropriate for security purposes and also for competitive purposes and the like. Uh, But you could expect that we will actually engage in a lot more Bitcoin activity (laughs) as time comes by, right? It's... I can't do everything immediately everywhere. And if I, and even if I could, I'm not telling everybody, right? For obvious reasons. But you can probably infer uh, that I'm enthusiastic and the company's enthusiastic and we see lots of opportunity here and we expect to invest across the ecosystem in a variety of ways. Excellent. Michael, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it and uh, everything you bring into the space it's uh it's amazing to have uh, you know a whale on our side and a whale that's not going to be looking to dump which uh you know <laughs> has happened many times in the past you've lifted the price floor and you've um had a personal thanks from uh the guys at tahini's i don't know if you follow them on twitter yeah the they're Canadian great. Re- Big yeah fan. um i interviewed ali the other day and he said, um, please say thanks because uh, it was your news that, that pushed them over the edge to, to get into a Bitcoin standard for their own, their own family business. And it's definitely making a huge dent, man. It's, it's, you're, you're affecting people's lives and thinking. And it's, uh, yeah, it's great to have you along for the ride. Uh, I'm inspired by Tahini. And I, and I think that they're inspirational for a lot of other businesses. And uh, I think that this is a very formative stage for Bitcoin. I think people still... They, there's a there's a first generation who are speculators and traders, and I don't think they really appreciated what they had. And there's another generation, they're going to see this as the world's first perfected digital monetary network. And it's, it's an engineering feat. And you have an opportunity to plug your treasury, your monetary system into a digital monetary system, the best digital monetary system. It's not a speculation, right? It's, it's not a financial instrument. It's not a cool investment idea. It's not, a, it's not some kind of like summer romance, right? It's, the Romans invented aqueducts. You have the ability of an aqueduct in your town. Are you going to like turn it on for the summer and turn it off and trade it and, you know, and sell it? It's an aqueduct, right? That's what Bitcoin is. It's an aqueduct. It's electricity. You can have electricity to your town, right? We need, once you get that idea, it's electricity, dude. Like, well, I thought I'd trade it and then I will like sell it at the end of the summer and wait for it to like be cheaper. It's like, it's electricity. You want to shake these people, you know? And I think that uh, Tahini, you know, helps with that when people adopt the Bitcoin standard. It helps with that. As we start to explain, this is a, it's a feat of engineering wonder. When we engineered steel plants and we were able to create steel, it's like, it's steel. Like we thought we'd build a town with steel and then we'd stop and for the next 30 years we'll build with wood. No, you know, it's steel. We invented steel. We invented electricity. We invented aqueducts. It's a, we, uh, I give you a bridge. It's a bridge. We're going to have it this summer, but you know, when are you going to tear down the bridge? I'm not tearing down the bridge. It's a dam. Right? Like the, the challenge is to communicate to people 
it's a fundamental engineering advancement that underpins the progress of the human race. When for the first time in the history of the human race, we're able to store and channel monetary energy without power loss. Like a nuclear reactor, like something big, it's a bit, we're flying airplanes. For the first time in history, we can fly in a plane and not crash and burn. You know, like, well, you're going to use that this summer and you're going to sell the airplane so you can buy, you know, a sailboat. No, I am not going to sell the airplane. It's an airplane. It's something impressive. People that trade it, they don't understand it. They just seriously don't understand what this thing is. If they understood what it is, the only question they'd be asking is, how do I get more? Exactly. <laughs> Okay, with that, I guess we ring off. Daniel, thanks for having me. Thanks, Michael. Uh, where should people uh, come and find you if they if they want to reach out and uh, want to hear more from you? Well, Twitter, Michael Saylor, Michael underscore Saylor. Twitter is uh, is the best place to follow any of my thoughts. If they want to know more about Bitcoin and how I think about Bitcoin, go to hope.com, H-O-P-E. Bitcoin is hope. You'll find stuff. Thank and you. The don't forget sailor.org, right? For the, uh, the education. Thank you. Yes. If they want free education or if they know anybody that wants free education, go to sailor.org. It's all free. I think we added 80,000 students in the past 12 weeks. Uh, you know, people are starting to figure it out. We had quite a few every day. Um, it's, it's hard to give away stuff for free, Daniel. So just if you spread the word, it's free. Tell people that want free education. The world would be a better place if we educated more people. 100%. Michael, thanks so much. And I look forward to uh, the next time we do this. Okay, have a good one. Hey guys, thank you for listening. And thank you, Michael, for coming on the show. And... We went over time, I apologize for that, but uh, the last few questions, uh, we, we got into some um, other topics. Uh, really appreciate all your time and um, everything that you've done for the space so far. Lots to unpack from that episode. Obviously a favorite topic of mine, as many of the long-term listeners will know, his thoughts around education and how that sector is going to get turned upside down in the next 10 years and a complete transition away from everything we've known for the last 100 to 150 years of this defunct system that we still insist on pushing on families, which does not serve families. It doesn't serve the kids. It doesn't serve the parents. It certainly does not serve the teachers, those who have this calling to educate but just have to navigate this bureaucratic administrative system of bullshit and teach not, not even teach in the manner that they can or, or want to teach. They're, they're, they're told how to teach, what to teach, when to teach it, from what books to teach it from. It's just so dumb that we're still doing this. And to hear someone like Michael back up those <laughs> beliefs that I've held for the last six years 
since exiting the, the mainstream education system and looking at it as an outsider looking in, as, as we were talking about. So to have someone like that finally come out and, and lay it out as well as he did and to see the vision as well as he does, the virtual wave, and how and build a, a an online platform where people can go and learn absolutely anything for free that just makes my heart sing that that i mean all of the bitcoin chat that was all brilliant as well but the fact that we've got people like michael with his reach and his means building something like this that is just such a another monumental shift in the right direction for humanity and society at large is brilliant and you know let's go let's really really go because we we just need more and more people like this doing this and driving people forward and, and into areas of life that, that they're really going to excel at something that they they are passionate to study you cannot stop someone when they are passionate about something look at us all look at us all here we are passionate about Bitcoin. If there was a Bitcoin class to go to every day, you'd go for 10 hours a day. And you know you would. And think of the things you would learn and the rabbit holes you would get pulled into. Every facet of Bitcoin, you just want to suck that knowledge up and you wouldn't complain about it. It wouldn't feel like work. In fact, you'd go at the weekends if you could. But of course, no, we don't have that opportunity. And kids don't have that opportunity because we, we, we just bow to this nonsense system that we've just, I don't know, we've been the boiling frogs of the education system. We got to jump out. <laughs> there's, there's, there's no other way to put it. We've, we've got to jump out. So really great to, to get into that conversation. And all of the Bitcoin conversations, wherever they went, uh, talking about um, the privacy thing and getting his point of view from someone, he, he, he can't even engage in it. Um, like, like engage in a private coin. It, it's not even a, a thing for him because of his standing as a company and as a CEO. That's, it's just, and to hear, and to hear that, that, that side of it and, and where he thinks it's going and where the, the price floors are going to be set because of the, uh, the, the, the bigger institutions that are going to start coming in that have the same kind of uh, battles that, that, that he faced, they're not going to be coming in on, on BISC and um, HODL HODL. That's, that's for the plebs right now. And that's great. In fact, that, that could even be better. You know the the, the 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 taco eaters at the bottom of the of this we we can we can stack away and and like he said stack however you want to stack if <laughs> it doesn't it doesn't really make that much of a difference if if you want to go and stack uh privately then go ahead and do it and we have that option and yeah i mean if you if you if you want to stack on um, PayPal, then I guess, again, it's a good point. We, we all had our first touch points and we've all been down the rabbit hole. It's, it, it's, 
All we can do is steer those people that are coming behind us. But if we're, if we're, if we're shouting too, too loud about it, we can provide the, the education and be there in the DMs and ready to respond and ready to help friends and family. And, but at the end of the day, if someone can do it at touch of the button, that's going to be their first touch point. I guess that's their first touch point. And then it, it's our duty, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh touch points, however long it takes, to then slowly just help everybody uh, around us understand uh, the next step and then the next step and then the next step. Which, if you think about the legacy financial system, none of us ever had that, right? Uh, you, you kind of shamed into, you got to open a bank account and that's it. You don't, you don't know how it works, what's going on behind the scenes. You don't know really why you're doing it. You don't understand half of it. What the, what what's a mortgage rate? What's an interest rate? What's this, that, and the other derivative? What's this thing over here? This air quote savings vehicle. Uh, whereas, as Bitcoiners, we can definitely take the opposite stance to that and, and help people understand it very slowly and uh, in their own time. And everybody's different, so it was great to get into that conversation. And everything else that, uh, that we touched on as well. Um, I'll leave it there. Thanks again, Michael, so much for coming on. Uh, I've got another show lined up with Michael, which I'm very much looking forward to. We'll be dropping that in, in a few weeks' time with another guest. Uh, Jeff Booth will be joining us to do uh, a special show there. Talking very much about Bitcoin in the boardroom and what, uh, what that landscape is going to be looking like over the next five years or so. So thanks, everybody, as usual, for listening. Make sure you go big up the sponsors of the show. And uh, if you do want to start stacking some sats in the UK, uh, coinfloor.co.uk forward slash bitten. They will do it right for you, as will swanbitcoin.com forward slash once bitten in the US. Those are two great companies that will hold your hand and will give you all the education that you need and help you start stacking your sats. So go check both those companies out. Big thanks to at Hodler Than Now. The Britcoiners over at 21ism doing amazing work. At Adam Woodham's one for putting this together and Jim Reaper for the website, man. Really appreciate it. That's once-bitten.com. You can share that around with your friends and family. Episodes link straight to that. And you can find out a little bit more about myself and check out my book as well, which is called uh, Choose Life. Thanks, everybody. Really appreciate everybody listening, showing up for the show each week, going from um, strength to strength with the guests that are coming on. And it's all because you guys are showing interest and sharing and commenting and liking. Appreciate everybody. Big love. Let's go. 15K when 16, when moon. See you guys.